Today, we welcome Secretary Condoleezza Rice and Senator Dan Sullivan. Secretary Rice is currently at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where she serves as the Tad and Diane Toby Director and the Thomas and Barbara Stevenson Senior Fellow in Public Policy. In addition, she is a founding partner of Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel. She served as the 66th Secretary of State, as well as the National Security Advisor for President George W. Bush, where she served with our other guest today, Senator Dan Sullivan. Alaska's eighth United States Senator, he is recognized as one of the Senate's most effective lawmakers. He sits on four Senate committees, the Committees on Air Services, Commerce, Science, and Transportation, Environment and Public Works, and Veterans Affairs. He's also currently the chairman of the International Republican Institute. Prior to his election to the Senate in 2015, he served as Alaska's Attorney General, as well as an Assistant Secretary of State and Director at National Security Council. Sullivan is an infantry officer and colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve. Thank you, Secretary Rice and Senator Sullivan for joining Hoover Capital Conversations today. Well, thank you very much, Erin, and thank you for all of you who are joining us today for this uh, conversation with uh, Senator Sullivan, a friend of uh, ours and uh, someone with whom I've worked and just have the highest regard with. So thank you, Senator Sullivan, for Dan, for joining us. And uh, let me just start uh, by um, something that's actually quite sad. I think we're all heartbroken by watching the devastation at Robb Elementary School in uh, Uvalde, Texas. Um, can you just reflect for a moment on uh, this moment for our country and also what we might do as a society, as a country, and in particular, the responsibility of Congress uh, at yeah. this time. Well, I want to begin by thanking you, Condi and Hoover. Um, I have, I, I think many of you know, uh, Secretary Rice has been my boss and mentor for uh, many years, still is a, a great friend and someone I rely on uh, a ton for ideas and advice. So I'm very honored to be here. I'm a big fan of Hoover and, uh, and Stanford. Uh, some of you know, I have amazing, an amazing wife and three daughters, and we have a strong relationship with the university, including my middle daughter, who's gonna be graduating in two weeks from Stanford undergrad. So, well, look, we are obviously like the rest of the country, horrified by the events that occurred um, in Texas uh, just a few days ago. And I think um, in what I've been talking to my uh, Democratic and Republican colleagues, I, I made a pitch to, to uh, our Senate conference yesterday at our lunch is to try to broaden the aperture on the what's happening here. And when it comes to these uh, horrendous mass shootings, the common theme of almost all of them is it's the social alienation of young men. They're often in many ways sick young men, uh, often fueled by social media. And I think we are at the beginning, and I'm seeing this everywhere back home in Alaska, but reading about it, um, in the midst of the beginning of a severe mental health crisis uh, that uh, particularly for our young Americans, it doesn't matter what class, what ethnic group, it's almost in some ways like the opioid crisis where we're seeing this everywhere and it's manifesting itself in 
oftentimes violence, it's not just the shootings, but as you know, uh, teen suicide rates are almost tripled in the last 10 years. And so I think we need a wholesale approach from the Congress's perspective that is trying to focus on these issues. And of course that will get to some of the root causes on these uh, horrendous shootings, just two in the last week. But I think trying to address a much broader challenge that's heading our way, I have no doubt it's heading our way on the mental health crisis, a lot of that fueled by the pandemic, but not exclusively, is to me where I'm already having some quite in-depth discussions with Democrat senators and Republicans. And that's kind of the broader view in which I'm trying to understand it and address it. Well, thank you very much. And I think, as you said, it, it takes all of us because uh, as a country, this is a, 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 a new kind of pandemic that we're facing. And I think we, we really have to draw together. So thank you for your thoughts on that. Uh, it's a challenging time in yeah. so many ways. And uh, let me go to something that's near and dear to the heart of an Alaska senator. But uh, given the crisis at the at the uh, the pump for Americans, uh, given what we're seeing on television uh, every day with uh, the Russian invasion, the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, it really does bring to the fore something that I know you've been concerned about for a long time, which is the whole question, not just of energy supply and environmental uh, sustainability, but really the is issue of energy security. Yes. As we look at a Russia that uh, for all the right reasons uh, will hopefully uh, be isolated from energy markets, but it, it means that we're in a different world uh, in yeah. terms of energy supply and security. You've also been someone who's looked to legislation or has uh, talked to introduced legislation to encourage uh, innovation and in clean energy. So can you step back and give us a look at the energy picture, including the issues of energy security? Sure, I think, and thank you, Condi, because you know you you've been such a leader in this area as it relates to Russia. You know this brutal invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin signals a number of things. I think, and I've been saying, it signals a new era of authoritarian aggression led by uh, Xi Jinping and Putin, who are often working together, uh, paranoid about. Um, their neighbors and willing to use very brutal uh, military tactics and other economic coercion against neighbors and wanting to uh, really uh, separate the United States from our allies, which is one of our strongest um, strategic advantages we have in the world. Thanks to you and President Bush and so many others. And I give President Biden and his team a lot of credit on deepening and expanding that area of strategic advantage, our alliances. You know, we just had the confirmation hearing a couple hours ago of the new NATO commander who is gonna be phenomenal. Um, speaks Russian, has uh, studied Russia, has had uh, military posts uh, with regard to uh, NATO and Russia. I, I, at the end of the hearing, I looked at him and said, you are Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare, right? I mean, this guy knows, you know, I, I would say for, with few exceptions, Condoleezza Rice being one of them, he probably knows more about Russia than almost any other America. 
American. So, but I talked to him extensively in my office yesterday before his confirmation hearing, and a huge part of our discussion was on energy. And this is an area where I think now the American people have recognized we have this incredible strategic advantage that we need to take advantage of. And of course, we need to do it for our own country, our own workers, and that's the abundance of American energy that we have at home. And this is all of the above energy. Of course, it's oil and natural gas, but it's uh, nuclear, solar, um, hydro, wind. I mean, we have it all. And what I think is so important to recognize in this new era of authoritarian aggression, one of our great strategic advantages beyond our system of alliances, beyond our very strong and lethal military, beyond our democratic values, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping, they fear their own people. And I think one of the greatest strategic advantages we have with regard to them is our commitment to liberty and democracy. But the other one is our natural resources and energy. And I think now more than ever, our allies are looking to the United States to help them. You know, I met very recently with the Lithuanian defense minister. Very smartly, 10 years ago, Lithuania started to put together a plan to wean itself off of Russian oil and gas. As of April, they cut off, they cut off all imports of Russian oil and gas. And where are they getting it from? They're starting to get it from the United States. The Germans are gonna need the same help. Un unwisely, in my view, they had the opposite um, approach strategically, which was to depend on Russian oil and gas. And now they're gonna cut that off, but they're hurting. They're, uh, you know, the German citizens are very much in a bind with regard to energy. This is another opportunity we have both for our European allies and our Asian allies to get American energy uh, to our allies in terms of national security, but also in terms of our own uh, population. And I'll end with this. You mentioned, and we'll, and we'll put it up on my website about 10 months ago now, me and a number of Republican senators, we tried to make it bipartisan. We put together this very detailed energy plan and it's all of the above energy as everything that I just mentioned. And what we focused on is the ability to build energy projects, again, solar, wind, uh, and oil, natural gas. But here's the thing on this uh, that I think so many people miss. I trot this chart out quite a lot. This is a chart, if everybody can see it. From 2005 to 2020, it shows the uh, change in annual um, emissions from the United States, which is right here, that's China and India, uh, up by almost 500%. We're down in the last over 15 years by almost 15%. We had a hearing the other day, just yesterday on a senior administration official for the EPA for his confirmation hearing. I showed him this chart and I said, why do you think that happened? He got it wrong, surprisingly. It, the reason that happened was the revolution in American natural gas and the production of American natural gas displacing coal. Our ability to export to our friends in Asia and Europe will also have enormously positive impacts with regard to global emissions, almost more than any other thing we can do. The plan that we put together 
Um, we modeled that. It's got a big element of increasing exports of LNG all around the world, including to China, in my view, if they want American ex uh, Alaskan LNG, that's fine with me. But um, the modeling we did said that that could over the long term have a, almost a 10% reduction on global emissions. So this is a win-win-win for our economy, our workers, our allies, in our environment, in the global environment. And I think we really need to now put the pedal to the metal on that, particularly given how stark the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made energy security issues. Uh, yes, and <clears throat> in fact, if there's anything uh, to say from this, it is that really it has made people very energy security uh, aware. Uh, you're so right. I was thinking, uh, Dan, that all the way back to Ronald Reagan, we tried to convince the Germans not to build that first pipeline. Mm -hmm. And then every administration, Democratic and Republican, has tried to get the Germans not to build the second pipeline. Yeah. And uh, now, unlike the Poles or the Fens, for that matter, or the, the Baltic states, they find themselves very dependent. And yeah. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. We're, if we're going to help them, we have to fully leverage what I've called the North American energy platform, which That's means right. the, uh, the tremendous resources that we have stretching all the way from Canada uh, to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, are you getting a hearing about this? I, everybody's concerned about climate. We all, yeah. but the transition's not going to be so quick from hydrocarbons. No, so it's not are you quick. getting a hearing? And we're getting a lot of hearing. I, like I said, I raise this, I bring this chart with me everywhere. And I have to admit, there's a lot of interest in this. There's a group of senators led by Joe Manchin right now. I'm part of it, Democrat and Republican senators who are trying to come together on issues of energy and the environment and jobs and climate. And, um, you know, I think it's getting some traction. I really do think that the starkness of this invasion brutal invasion by Russia uh, into Ukraine has highlighted the need for energy security as well as it has for traditional military security. So I'll give you an example. It sounds like a wonky issue, but it's something I'm very passionate about. The first meeting we had of all these senators, it's centered around a key element of the plan that I just put forward, and it's on the issue of permitting reform. You know, in America, relative to any other country, especially industrialized democracies, it takes forever to get projects permitted by the federal government and off the ground. It doesn't matter if it's wind, solar, hydro, um, natural gas, a road, it can take up to 10 years to permit these kind of projects. This is a huge self-inflicted wound that we have put upon our own country. And I don't think um, anybody is supportive. When I talk to mayors and governors, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, the number one they, thing they say to me is, Senator, we got to fix our permitting system. It is broken. It's um, hindering our ability to get energy, critical minerals, things that we have in America and we need actually um, uh, developed. And I will say one other thing on the energy issue. I've mentioned this a number of times. You know, one of the great um, honors of my life is having a mentor, not only like you, but uh, when I got to the Senate, John McCain was a great mentor of mine. And I was in a meeting with him about five years ago with a Russian dissident. I'm sure you know him. Unfortunately, he's in jail right now in Russia, 
Vladimir uh, Karamurza. And uh, in this meeting, by the way, twice poisoned by Putin, this uh, brave man, uh, in the meeting, at the end of the meeting, I asked him, Vladimir, what is the number one thing we in America can do to undermine the Putin regime and his grip on power? He says, Senator, it's easy. The number one thing is to keep producing more American energy. Yeah. It will undermine him. It will get uh, options for our NATO allies. I think his advice um, is stronger than ever. And the good news is, I think most Americans, a lot of my Democratic friends in the Senate are recognizing just how uh, imperative that idea is. Well, that's that's terrific. And, and another piece of it, of course, is if you think about uh, energy, the environment, but there's also the economy. Yeah. And uh, for Americans today, there are a lot of uh, troubling signs in the economy, mostly when they go to the pump, mostly when they go to the grocery store. So can you talk a little bit about inflation and how you're addressing and what you think we ought to be doing to address inflation? Well, you may have seen, we just had uh, the uh, uh, votes here in the Senate on a number of the new Federal Reserve nominees. And we had a vote on the chairman for his second term, Jay Powell. And um, I was one of a few senators who actually voted against them. I have a lot of respect for him. I have a lot of respect for his experience. But I think uh, the Fed dramatically took its eye off the ball with its core mission. The Fed has a dual mission from the Congress. It's price stability and the employment levels. That's it. That's what they're told to do. That's by us. That's one of the most important institutions in the world. And I think what you started to see happening in the Fed, including Chairman Powell, was they started to look at other issues. One of the issues that I think was way outside their mandate was this issue of starting to kind of do analysis on capital uh, allocations as it relates to climate. Well, that is not a Federal Reserve um, mandate. And to kind of look at and start choking off capital to the energy sector, which is what they were doing, to me was way outside their mandate. They took their eye off the ball of their core mission, particularly inflation. And like I said, I will, I'm working with this administration as much as I can, particularly on Asia issues, particularly on the good work they're doing with regard to our allies. But I have been an unrelenting critic of their energy policies because from day one, they've come in to office and they have sought to shut down energy production, particularly in Alaska. They have shut, sought, sought to delay and shut down energy infrastructure. Keystone XL is just one of many examples. And they have sought to pressure financial institutions not to invest in the American energy sector. The Fed was playing a role in that. And then when they realized we had this problem with energy prices, they literally started going around the world to Venezuela, to Iran, saying, well, we'll loosen sanctions if you guys can produce more energy. And you're like, wait a minute, you're shutting down energy in Alaska. How about getting it from Americans, not, you know, dictators and terrorists? So this is an area where I think it's really important that the Biden administration course correct. And it's really hurting um, working class families. I mean, the inflation numbers, which are driven in large part by uh, the energy inflation and the supply chain challenges and the spending, 
is having a hugely negative impact on families that are on fixed incomes or families, you know, like in my state where you drive to work 30 miles, you got to fill up your truck. I mean, it's devastating right now for middle class and working families. And um, that's probably the most, to me, the biggest blunder of this administration so far is energy policies are, are antithetical to trying to produce more energy, which is good for our environment, as I've mentioned. Yeah, let me just uh, ask you a little bit about something you said, because there, there is obviously there's the inflation problem. And one of the other things that was said early in the administration was, well, the spending would actually somehow uh, help to grow the economy. Nobody thought about the inflationary impact of spending. Uh, we're about to get close to the time when people start thinking about midterms. Do you think the, the big spending is off the table now for, uh, for at least the time being? Oh, I think so. Um, I mean, look, you know, we went through a we went through a period where um, all of us came together in a bipartisan way, particularly during 2020, when we had this pandemic that was unprecedented and there was really no playbook. And so we put together, uh, you know, when Republicans were in control of the Senate and we controlled the White House, we put together a um, relief package for the American people, five of them in 2020, uh, the CARES Act being the most prominent. I think that was the right policy at the time, the PPP program, other things that really helped uh, make sure the economy did not plunge into a massive recession or even depression, but there wasn't really a playbook. But the one thing we did, and it didn't get a lot of attention when there was, uh, when the Republicans were in, in control, we reached out to the Democrats and said, look, this is really important. It's a dangerous time with the pandemic. What do you guys want? We want this to be a very bipartisan relief package. And we did that all throughout 2020. When they gained power, unfortunately, the first thing they did was the American Recovery Act. And a lot of us were saying, don't do that. We don't need another $2 trillion after what we did in 2020. Let's let this play out. And that unfortunately was purely partisan. And that was kind of a bad break from the model that we had in 2020, which was very bipartisan. And I think even now, everybody from Larry Summers to many other Democratic economists are saying that $2 trillion package was a, um, was a real mistake and has really been one of the core elements, the American Recovery Act, driving inflation but, you know, there's still the temptation. Last week we had a bill, I think it was a $45 billion spending bill to help relief with regard to um, restaurants and other entities. And I'm not saying they weren't hurt badly by the pandemic. Um, I suggested to my colleagues, hey, let's use the over $1 trillion of COVID relief that hasn't been spent yet. It hasn't been spent yet, over $1 trillion to fund anything else, why would we add another 45 billion? That came to the floor, uh, Republicans voted against it, so it didn't move forward. So to your question is, I think, certainly my constituents are saying, hey, we wanna put the pandemic in the rear view mirror, but the unprecedented spending that happened, and a lot of it was bipartisan, was needed at the time, but we can't keep doing that. That's just unsustainable. Right. Before we go to the <clears throat> to the audience for questions, let me just uh, 
talk about Asia a little bit. Uh, yeah. You've been uh, from the armed services side, but also uh, close to the Arctic out there. Um, the China challenge, the Taiwan challenge, uh, you know, we learned the hard way, even supply chain challenges. Uh, we've talked about energy, we've talked about dependence on critical minerals when you yeah. talk about uh, China. So uh, you're going to take a trip pretty soon. Can you talk a little bit about Asia? Sure. Well, look, I, I think, uh, Condi, this is one of the, I would say, kind of the good news stories that doesn't really get out there that much uh, with regard to our strategy as a country and it, as it, how it relates to the rise of China. You know, I used to joke when I first got to the Senate in 2015, I would go and give these speeches on the floor about China, the big challenge. We got to be focused on it. Not many people are focused on it. That was in 2015. And um, the good news is you can't give that speech anymore in the, in the Senate. Um, starting with the 2017 national security strategy of the Trump administration, which uh, your Hoover colleague, H.R. McMaster, had a lot to do with, uh, was the author. And the 2018 national defense strategy, which another great Hoover institution um, uh, member, General Mattis, wrote that the shift under the Trump administration taking the national security strategy that actually you wrote with President Bush on the focus at the appropriate time, certainly after 9-11, which was on violent extremist organizations and their ability to get um, weapons of mass destruction as our premier focus in national security. It has shifted in the 2017 strategy uh, with a focus on great power competition with China as the pacing threat. Certainly we're still focused on the threat of uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS and other terrorist organizations, but this focus um, on the national security side, I think was the right one and has had enormous bipartisan support in the Congress, in the Senate in particular. I would say at least 90% of the Senate agrees with that reorientation and you're starting to see it every year in the National Defense Authorization Act which is very supportive of this uh, focus on China. Right now in the Senate, we are debating uh, the Endless Frontiers, uh, American Competes Act, which as Condi, you and I have talked about, how do we outcompete the Chinese with regard to basic research and uh, the ability to manufacture chips back in the United States? It's a huge bill. It's in conference right now. And again, very strong bipartisan approach to that. So I would say on the reorientation of a focus on China as our pacing threat, um, in terms of policy, are we there yet with a fully rational strategy? No, but as you know, in a democracy, you don't turn on a dime in terms of your ability to put forward uh, major uh, strategic changes, but it's happening. It's bipartisan, and it's one of the reasons I try to work with the Biden administration. I think Xi Jinping's worst nightmare is a long-term, sustainable, serious, bipartisan strategy dealing with the rise of China. And that's why I love plugging in with the Hoover Institution so much, because we get so many great ideas from so many of you. But it is happening in Washington, and I think that's a really good news story that's not often well-known. 
Well, thank you for that. And, uh, and, and your trip there should be very interesting. Let me, let me ask Aaron. Uh, Aaron, do we have uh, questions from the audience for the Senator? We do. The first question is from a journalist, Manic. He said, what are your thoughts on the recent announced concept of Indo-Pacific economic framework? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I think that um, it was needed. One of the criticisms you hear, and as Connie just mentioned, I'm going to be heading over to Japan and Korea next week. One of the criticisms that you hear about our strategy in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, has been it's really lacking a strong economic foundation. So I applaud the administration for moving forward with it, but um, I had been pressing them to make sure they included two things that unfortunately they didn't. One is energy. And I've already talked about the importance that we have with regard to energy and the uh, ability to um, really uh, enhance our own economy, but to help our Asian allies and partners. I put forward legislation uh, that's called the Quad Energy Security Initiative. That is an initiative that would make sure the Quad, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States have a robust energy relationship. And think about how much sense that makes. The United States and Australia are major LNG exporters. Japan is a major LNG importer. And India wants to be a major American LNG importer. It's a great example of where we can deepen our relationships, help our economies, help energy security. So it was missing the energy component. And I think that was a big mistake. And the other mistake, I think, very strategic mistake, was that the new economic architecture did not include Taiwan. And, um, you know, Taiwan's importance from a strategic perspective is obvious, but from an economic perspective, particularly as it relates to computer chip manufacturing, is hugely important. And I think it sent the wrong message uh, to the region that some countries were reluctant to include Taiwan because it would have made the Chinese Communist Party upset. Uh, I think that's the wrong message to show that the United States in some ways is isolating Taiwan out of an economic agreement. I've talked to very uh, numerous senior officials in the Biden administration. They said they are very focused on making sure there's going to be a bilateral economic track announced soon. I hope they do announce it soon. I hope it's ambitious because I think that that can be read as a real strategic mistake to not include Taiwan in that uh, new architecture that was announced. And, um, but otherwise, I think it's an important first step on a uh, pretty big missing piece of our strategy in the region. Aaron, a second question? Yes, from Eric. I'm curious if you see similar concerns in the realm of critical minerals. It seems that both the energy and technology requirements of future developed countries depend upon reliable access to critical and rare earth minerals many of which are right now sourced by China and to a smaller extent, Russia. Uh, yes, Eric, uh, absolutely. And again, this is an area where there's bipartisan concern and hopefully bipartisan action. Let me give you an example. I, when we were 
debating and voting on the instructions to go to conference on this big China, uh, this uh, America Competes Act, the bill I was talking about earlier. I had an amendment that essentially said any American federal government dollars, and this is a very significant bill in that regard, particularly as it relates to research and energy and clean energy technology, none of it can, no federal dollars can go to any critical minerals or clean energy technology uh, that buys those items from China or Russia. You can get it from America, of course, and our allies, but not those two countries. My amendment passed unanimously in the United States Senate. So that shows you the bipartisan focus on this, the Biden administration, again, this is where there's some frustration. Um, they have put together uh, an area of emphasis on critical minerals, um, rare earth elements. The president hosted a uh, important meeting on these, but the same day he hosted this meeting, the Biden administration came in and said they were shutting down and reversing a previous record of decision on a development called the Ambler Road in Alaska, which is a, a development for significant critical minerals. My state probably has more than almost any other place in our country, and they reversed it. So on one hand, they're saying we need to do this. The Congress is focused on it. On the other hand, the administration out of the blue after a six year study on the environmental impacts of this road and mining district in Alaska, they reverse it. It's back to the drawing board on that really important project in my state. Again, dozens if not hundreds of jobs are gonna be lost because of that decision by this administration. And it sets us back in terms of national security, energy security and clean energy technology kind of a, again, a, a policy approach that in many ways is well articulated, but then when they execute it, they're not making sense. Are there a few middle and low income strategies in the pipeline that would assist with boosting the everyday economic lives of this group of Americans and legal immigrants? Well, look, I think the one issue that impacts every group of Americans, but as I mentioned earlier, particularly middle-class, working-class families, um, regardless of your immigrant status, is energy. I mean, the costs of energy, uh, they're up almost 91% since the beginning of the Biden administration for gas at the pump. A lot of this, in my view, is self-inflicted, as I mentioned, the policies that they're undertaking. And to me, getting energy costs down, which people, whether it's heating your home or driving your vehicle, or even plugging in your electric vehicle, these costs are going through the roof. And I think that is the biggest um, uh, negative impact that we're having on middle-class and working-class families in America right now and inflation. Um, it's related of course, but uh, the fact that you're seeing food prices that are spiking, you're seeing um, rents, that are going up. It's a inflationary period that we haven't seen in over 40, 40 years. And the people who are hurt the most by those kind of inflationary policies uh, are middle and working class families. Thank you. And the final question, you represent an energy state where the resources on state and federal lands 
how are Biden's, the President Biden's administration's actions on energy impacting the people of your state? Uh, negatively, quite negatively. And again, you know, I get a little riled up on this. I don't want to make this all about Alaska. I know Hoover focuses on a whole host of issues. But these are the kind of issues that can, should concern Americans beyond my constituents. I'll just give you three examples. We had Secretary Granholm testify in front of the Armed Services Committee um, just last week. And there's been this discussion, well, we're trying to do all we can to increase energy production. And my point to her was respectfully, Madam Secretary, that's actually not true. Just in the last four weeks, um, the Biden administration announced that they were taking half of what's called the National Petroleum Reserve of Alaska, we call it NPRA, off the table. Now, NPRA is not like Anwar, it's not been considered controversial, it was set aside decades ago, initially called the Naval Petroleum Reserve of Alaska for energy production. It's never been considered controversial, and it's also now considered one of the most prolific energy basins in the world. When companies explore for oil and gas there, they are finding billion barrel fields. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago, they made an announcement, half of that petroleum reserve, the size of Indiana, they're gonna take off the table. Again, that hurts the jobs in my state, that hurts the opportunities for economic development. But as Americans, we should all be saying, wait, what are you guys doing? We need this energy. You have the infrastructure right next to it that you can put in the Alaska pipeline, Trans-Alaska pipeline. They just announced it. And then uh, two weeks ago, we have another hydrocarbon basin. It's smaller, but it was the original basin in Alaska called the Cook Inlet Basin. It principally just serves Alaska with natural gas and oil. It's smaller now. We used to export significant amounts of LNG from Cook Inlet to Japan. We are the first state in the world to export LNG to Asia in the, starting in the late 1960s. And the administration without any notice anyone said, we're canceling all the federal lease sales in Cook Inlet. We were like, wait, why would you guys do that? So these are things that are impacting my constituents in a really negative way. But I think all Americans should be concerned that you still have, despite the Russian invasion, despite the high energy costs at the pumps, you still have an administration that's taking action to clearly limit the supplies of energy with no upside on helping the environment, none at all. This makes no sense. And it's a policy area where I have fierce disagreement with the Biden administration and I'm letting them know that. Well, that's all we've got time for. Um, Senator Sullivan, Dan. Uh, Madam Secretary, always yeah. great to see you and be with great, you. And great all to see the Hoover you. Institution folks. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything that you're doing uh, every day for the country. These are challenging times. I think you've made just some excellent points today uh, about how we might address these important issues of energy and energy security. And uh, good luck on your trip to uh, Asia next, next week. I think it's uh, awfully important that the United States continue to show the flag, if you will, uh, to our allies, because you rightly say that one of our great strategic advantages is that we have real allies. Uh, the Chinese have clients. Yeah. We have allies. And so uh, they are some of the strongest, most democratic, more eco most economically viable countries in the world. And so uh, thank you for engaging in what our great patron George Schultz once called oh. gardening. 
Garden. He always said that you have to go and garden with the allies. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm also very grateful to our audience uh, for joining us in this conversation. Uh, you can learn more about this series, Capital Conversations, at hoover.org forward slash Capital Conversations. We look forward to the next one, and we look forward to your next visit to Hoover, uh, Senator Sullivan, and congratulations to Thank the you. Sullivan family on yet another Stanford graduate. Yes, we're very honored. And thanks again, everybody, and, and Hoover for the great work you do. I hope everybody has a wonderful Memorial Day uh, weekend. And uh, I can't thank you enough. All the great ideas, all the smart people at Hoover who are helping members of the Senate like me get through these challenging times. It's a real honor to be with all of you again. And I look forward to the next time. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.